from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that crafts supernatural horror within the desolation of the countryside. Her prose is visceral and compelling, and her stories torment the mind. She's joining me today to talk about her new novella, The New Girl's Patient, as well as her previous and upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Ruth Ann Jag. Welcome to the show. Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me. I've been following you online for a little while, so I was thrilled when I saw that visceral cover for your first solo novella. So I'm glad that I got to read it, and I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, The New Girl's Patient is my first solo longer bit of work, and that stunning cover is by Don Noble. And he's quite a terrific artist. Everybody loves the cover, and uh, it's having really good reception. Yeah, I agree. I remember, I think I was scrolling through your Instagram, and I saw the cover, and I was like, whoa, what is this? Hold the presses. Let's see. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's why you need a great cover. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but... Sometimes. I think we're all do that because I will buy a book for its cover as well. Um, the oh, cover, will you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The cover is <laughs> kind of representative of the generational story of my main female character in the story. As you go into more detail, you'll learn that there are other female characters kind of throughout the story that have a dark past. And to me, when I saw that cover, I was, oh my gosh, that's the one because you see this female form and you can tell she's tormented, but there's almost a a shadowy effect about it. So it kind of goes back and forth, future and past to me when I look at the cover. And I haven't gotten sick of it yet. It's almost a year and I haven't gotten tired of it yet. Well, so you've written and published quite a few short stories and various anthologies. What was it about this story that brought you to the realization that you needed to flesh this particular story out into a novella? Yeah, I think I've got well over 25 short stories in different anthologies and collections. The characters, absolutely the characters. I wanted to tell the story of a girl who was down on her luck 
but that was willing and able to change her life and do things for herself. And once I started writing the character of Jamie Carver and then introducing the supernatural elements and everything that goes along with it, there was no way I could limit it down to five, 6,000 words or under 8,000 words for a short story. It had to become longer. It wasn't quite novel length, but I was thrilled with doing a novella from it. Well, I'm extremely detailed, almost to a fault. So I was curious to know, in what genre do you classify your novella? This one is definitely firmly in the horror genre. Some of my other work, I like to say I write dark speculative and horror fiction. Some of my other work isn't quite as, as you say, visceral or strong in its descriptiveness. This one falls firmly into the horror genre. It's not quite splatter punky, which is a trendy term that's being thrown around <laughs> for some really violent fiction. And we all love it because it affects the part of us that loves to be scared or loves to shiver, as it were. But I definitely went to the darker side with this one in some areas. And can you define speculative fiction for me? Um, speculative fiction comes under the heading where there's typically a supernatural or cosmic or unnatural effect, either on the setting or a character or the outcome. Something is introduced in the story that would not be typical to our world or our behavior as humans. Okay. Well, the setting for the story, Cree's Crossing, the picture you paint is very bleak. A rural area with a lot of roads that lead to nowhere, both figuratively and literally. Which do you find elicits a feeling of hopelessness more intensely? Rural areas where you get lost in solitude or urban areas where you get lost in a crowd? Definitely rural areas. I've lived in both. I've lived in large cities and I live on a cattle ranch in Texas now. And it's very bleak a lot of the time. There's nothing and nobody around me most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I find that you're alone with your thoughts more. And to me, that's more unsettling. You're more likely to jump if you hear a noise, even though the noises of animals at night and that type of thing are typical. But you're also more likely to have an introduction of something that would be abnormal because there's more chances for it to be. I understand that in a rural setting, all kinds of things can happen. But I think we get conditioned more to the effects of being in an urban setting. When you're in a rural setting and it's so quiet all the time, you're like, what was that? Oh, my gosh, what happened? Where's this coming from? Is there somebody out there? Did somebody jump the fence? Um, so to me, a rural setting is much more um, discomforting than an urban setting. As well as probably the psychological implications like Jack Torrance in The Shining <laughs> being secluded in that. I don't know if that was necessarily rural. It was probably close to a small town. But up there, it was rural. There was nobody around. It was right, just that, right. Yeah. The overlook was definitely isolated. And it does have an effect. I think it does take a certain kind of personality to be able to be alone all the time, especially when... I mean, we can all reach out virtually or now, but 
I don't have the human connection as often as a lot of people would. I can't just hop down to the coffee shop or walk out my front door and go down to the neighborhood grocery store. It's an hour to get any place from here. Yeah, Jack was stuck, but I think he had issues before he went up on that mountain. Yeah. (laughs) I think there were things already working. That just brought it all forward. I imagine the ability to have some pretty crazy parties exists, though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, there, there aren't any rules here. Um, we just had a party this past weekend. Um, yeah, it usually involves target shooting, fire pits, something being killed and cooked. They make some mean jalapeno poppers out back, too. Uh-huh. I mean, they take the jalapeno poppers and wrap them in bacon mm-hmm. and then stuff them with cream cheese and they blow up all over the grill. <laughs> so, and there's also all kinds of vehicles around here. Yeah, you can have some crazy parties. Yeah, not like we used to, but we still do. I just got a vivid picture of Hunter S. Thompson tripping on acid, firing his forty four Magnum. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's pretty reserved around here. Oh, yeah, okay. no, no, we don't do that. But there are targets, and the guys do like to target shoot. Literally, Vince, I am in the middle of nowhere, so we still can do that. Civilization is encroaching to a certain extent, but we have enough of a buffer around us. So four wheelers and target shooting and bow and arrow practice, sir. It's just what they do out here. Outstanding. Well, the character of Jamie, the protagonist, was very well written and likable. Thank you. Especially the way she pulled herself up by her bootstraps and went from housekeeping to getting her nursing license. Was her character based on anyone in real life? Absolutely. I've known a lot of women like that who literally by circumstance or choice were left having to explore other options in life. Jamie Carver is young and that has something to do with the way she goes forward rather quickly. But yes, it's based on quite a few women I know who are on their second act, as it were. They wanted to do something different in their life and they tried to do it. Okay. Well, the character of Jamie's quote-unquote friend Callie takes an unexpected turn in the book. My wonder about her was because she had such an intricate backstory in the book and how the story unfolds, I wanted to know if she was the first character, even before Jamie, that you developed when you came up with the idea for the story. Callie was not my first character. Actually, Lila was my first character. I think there's always a good and evil in any good story. And I wanted to create a character who is pure goodness Mm. that would ultimately become a victim. And then Jamie became my main character. Actually, Callie was the darkness to the light. I needed somebody who would just be that mean girl in every story, regardless of her background. She comes from a well-to-do background. She's the one that has got the really negative choice decision-making process going on. And she's the one that could have done so much more and bettered herself. And she chooses just to be kind of a second-rate criminal, as it were. Hmm. Greed, jealousy, all those elements we're familiar with. Yeah. (laughs) Good fodder for a story, though. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tried to create her so there was not a whole lot to like about her. I think we all know somebody like her in real life, but we tolerate them. 
And sometimes we even make the mistake of thinking they're friends. And then we find out they're not who we thought they were, but their true colors are showing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Ms. Elizabeth, who is Jamie's patient, has sort of a handmaid's tale like backstory, but was looked after by what you describe as some older women that lived in a shack in the woods that trained her in what I would say was witchcraft, but maybe you would say is survival. I would say it's it's survival, folk healing, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You nailed it. Is there a backstory for those mysterious old women? And if so, can you tell us a little about them? There is a backstory, and I'm not going to tell you because there is a full-length sequel coming out next June from D&T Publishing, tentatively titled Crease Crossing. There's still too much of the story to tell, and it's interesting, Vince, because I've talked to a number of different people about it, and everybody does want to know more about her character. They do want to know how she survived. Basically, the era is post-depression or during the depression. And they do want to know how she overcomes the, as you call it, handmaid's tale aspects of her upbringing and her marriage. But there's a lot more to that story, but you're going to have to wait till next June or I'll send you an arc of the book ahead of time. So you have an inside line first. (laughs) Nice. So are there other people that are asking about the backstory of those women? Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's probably the number one question I get asked. They want to know more, not where Jamie ends up necessarily, though that will be part of the story. But they do want to know how a woman like that, under those circumstances, basically her father dumps her off on somebody who's a heinous person. I mean, he's got no redeeming qualities. And he is a criminal. But she has to survive, but she also has to function within this relatively small box of a world that she lives in. And that's where the supernatural aspects of what she's learned from these women who looked after her after her mother died, that's where that's going to come into the next story. And that there will be a lot more to tell there. I've already started it, actually. Have you? Yes. Okay. Uh So was the creation of those women and the way they were written by design did you know that that was going to stoke people's interest and be kind of like the carrot on the stick for the sequel or is it just kind of happen organically and you're like well that's good because the sequel no just happens to be about that (laughs) (laughs) i really you know when i finished the novella vince I kind of knew there was more to tell, but I wanted to see if people liked the story. I wanted to see if they connected to the characters. I wanted to get the reactions and response from people. I did not plan it to have a sequel. I planned it to be a standalone, just a story. And this is what happens. And this is what happens at the end. You know, there's basically three parts to a story. But as I was writing it and as I got closer to the finale, I thought, oh, hell, if people like this, man, I'm just going to blow it up the next time. I'm going to go into even more detail. I'm going to talk more about Crease Crossing itself. And is the whole town like this, where there are all kinds of negative events going on that led to all these things that were the catalyst, ultimately for the hospital where Jamie first meets this patient, this really interesting patient. 
I want to go into more detail there. I think there's a whole backstory about the area and the hospital itself that will play into some other things that I plan to see where Jamie goes. As you know, because you read it, I don't want to give too much away, but she does manage to overcome a very serious life-threatening situation and she gets out of it but does she get out of it in one piece and is there still a price she has to pay so I really didn't plan on writing a sequel until after it was finished and after I saw that people really did enjoy the story and then I was approached about writing it and I pitched a tentative title and a tentative theme for it and the publisher was like oh yeah we love that we'll take that one can you do it kind of thing (laughs) so it worked out really well for everybody i think but there's more to the story nice well the violence in the book is on the extreme side which is awesome the darker and more extreme the better in my opinion (laughs) so what drew you to writing that form of overt violence rather than a more mainstream form that's subtle or implied I think there's definitely a place for both, but the characters in the story that were the menace to Jamie, I needed to define and I needed to make it clear in a relatively short space of time, because it is a novella, how actually terrible they were. They're terrible people. What they're capable of is terrible and their motivation is terrible. And I didn't have a lot of time to do it, so I had to hit hard. And the editor of the novella is Patrick Harrison. And when we were going through the edits, I said, oh, is this too much? Is this too much? And he was like, no, you've (laughs) got to go there. You've got to show that these men, this is who they are, and this is what they will do. And if this doesn't happen, it's going to be so bad. Typically, I don't go quite that dark, but... Even now when I go back and people bring it up, I'm like, oh, damn, did I really write that? (laughs) Because at the time, it seems like a really good idea. Uh And then afterwards, you're like, it's kind of like there's a couple things that are definitely taboo when you're writing, even in the horror genre. Uh You don't want to kill animals. You don't want to hurt children. Mm. There's just certain things that are taboo. And I think I kind of tap danced around a couple of them with with one scene in particular. So I had some reservations. I can honestly say, Vince, nobody has had any kind of protest against the violence because it is so pertinent to the story. It is so necessary to the story. Okay. So you haven't had to deal with any Amazon cancel culture? Any? No, absolutely not. (laughs) I have not had to deal with any of that. As a matter of fact, I think it was a surprise for some people because as a female author in the genre, I think people underestimate your capabilities sometimes. Mm. But I always say, and like when I'm talking to different people and my peers, don't underestimate what a woman's capable of. Because, <laughs> because we can go just as dark as a male. I mean, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We can go there with our writing if we need to. So I actually think it gave me a little bit of street cred, especially with some of my male readers, because they look for a little more of that. I mean, it's lovely to imply and it's lovely to talk about skirt the edges of the violence. But when you go there and you hit the violence, they're like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going (laughs) to read her other stuff now. So it was kind of like a street cred thing for me in that respect. Uh Uh-huh. Very nice. Well, the descriptions of those two main villains, you know, it involves moonshine, boorish teenage behavior, 
violence towards women, kind of reminiscent of some of the uh, splatterpunk greats. Those particular characters kind of brought Edward Lee's Mm -hmm. books to mind, like The Big Head. Is he an influence of yours at all? Edward is not typically an influence. I have read a lot of his work. Mm -hmm. I think he's a genius. I think he's iconic. But the way that he writes is so recognizable as his style. Yeah, I would never borrow into that or be influenced by it, but rather not be afraid knowing that there are readers that will also enjoy that level of violence or that level of graphic descriptiveness. So I would say in that respect, I think he influences just about everybody who writes in the genre. In fact, I think he's got a new release or it's releasing this month. He's actually got something new coming out and people are just chomping at the bit for it. I would say so directly he's not an influence, but of course his work is influential because he's probably one of the first authors that help define and set the parameters for the more violent work that some are reading and writing, and it's extremely popular right now. Yeah, I think he's a friend of yours, Daniel J. Volpe. I interviewed him, and he was talking about the compilation that he did with Beauregard, Triana, the obituaries. And he was talking about, you know, we wanted to release it ourselves to the website to avoid Amazon cancel culture. And I was like, Amazon cancel culture. I just literally bought the big head from Amazon. Are you guys going harder than the big head? He's like, no, nobody goes harder than the big head. It's just, you know, you'll find some people for some reason are reading extreme horror and get offended by it. Why they're reading it in the first place. I don't know. I guess they don't realize what extreme horror actually means. So, yeah, I think they're uh, testing their own boundaries, just as the authors are testing some boundaries. I think readers are also testing their tolerance and their boundaries. And I hate the word trigger, but we never know what might set off somebody. They could be reading along and then all of a sudden something could just hit and they could be like, oh my gosh, no. And then they send a little note to Amazon and it's happening more frequently. There's these little buzzwords and Amazon is pulling down listings. They're taking away reviews. And I think it was a very smart marketing move on Dan and Aaron and Christopher, everybody's part to do that because then you do avoid it and then you can put the work out on its own merit Mm. without wondering if there's going to be somebody just laying out there to knock you down. Oh my gosh, my child might see the cover. Oh, would Mm. you stop it? Your child has no (laughs) business seeing the cover. Aaron's got one out currently. I think it's called The Playground. And Amazon had a problem with the cover Mm. and they have to go through the different channels and get things revised. But yeah, those guys are some of the best in the biz right now, in my opinion. Mm. They're like the next generation that's really going to do the grindhouse stuff. Mm. They're going to do the classic gory, in-your-face horror, and I just love them. They're just terrific. Yeah. Well, the story has a supernatural element to it. If it's not too personal, what are your personal beliefs when it comes to the supernatural? I believe, to a certain extent, and I also believe that it has a lot to do with your receptability. I think some people are more receptive to influences or insinuations. And I think sometimes they can amplify that, whether it's actual or it's perceived to be something not of this world or unusual or dark or 
a different force that we're not used to dealing with the type of everyday energy that we deal with. I do believe, I think there's little things out there that just aren't explained and we probably shouldn't mess with them. Um, <laughs> just saw the movie Nope the other day for the first time. I think I was one of the last ones to watch it. I absolutely loved it, but that touches on a little bit of the cosmic Lovecraftian kind of looking into the sky and, oh my gosh, what is this going on? I think Jordan Peele's a genius. Once again, some people loved the movie, some people hated it. But it did touch on, is it there? Is it really not there? Wow, it is there kind of thing. I do believe. I think we've got stuff going on. If we probably knew what was happening around us most of the time, I don't know if some of us would get out of bed. I mean, I would love it. I'd be out there with a magnifying glass trying to check it out. But I do believe, and especially I believe in spiritual energy. I think you have to be very careful of, what you allow in, in terms of what you allow to affect you. I kind of have reservations about dabbling in the darkness. I will research it and I will read it. I do not practice it and there's a place for it. And I think that there are a very select few that are able to really understand that world. I don't know enough about it. <laughs> Hell, I just, I just don't want spooky things. I don't want to see those. What do they call them? The shadow men at the foot of your bed. I'm good with it. I, I sleep with both my feet inside. No foot ever touches the floor. <laughs> but I do believe. Yeah. 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 Heather Miller was on and she was talking about a story that her grandmother told her about. A, I forget what it was called, but it was basically a man with cold hands that would reach under the covers and grab you when you were laying awake in bed. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got her book and it's really a neat concept that her grandmother told her all those stories. Mm. She did something really fun with it. She's really good at that kind of, uh, I think you'd call it campfire horror. Yeah. In other words, mm. these little these little stories that told and passed down through generations, that kind of thing. I think it's called Tales My Grandmother Told Me. Yeah, it's really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But I, I don't want those guys in my room. So. <laughs> Not even the cold hands? No, 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 no. I've slept with enough of those. No, I'm, I'm, I'm I'll tell you what's even scarier. My family was very Catholic. I'm not. They still are. I think some of them. But my grandmother had one of those pictures of uh, Jesus up above her headboard where the eyes would follow you when you walked into the room. And to oh, me, Lord. oh, yeah, it was almost, it was so strange. And to me as a kid, that was one of the most terrifying things in the world that I would sleep in that bed and there was somebody that might be watching. I think it was <laughs> indicative of watching over you, not necessarily stalking you. Yeah. But now looking back, it wasn't so cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, The New Girl's Patient is published by DNT Publishing, and I have heard nothing but good things about Don Shea and DNT Publishing. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of working with them? I can tell you a lot about it. They're absolutely terrific. They're probably one of the most progressive honest and hardworking indie publishers out there right now. They're putting out some incredible work, Vince, and they're nonstop. She is the hardest worker. She's a full-time RN. I mean, she's a very responsible mom. I think she's got younger kids still at home. And she and her husband, Tim, managed to put out books 
They've got five books currently on the suggested Stoker reading list. Mm -hmm. Douglas Ford's story that just came out, and I think it's only released on Godless. It's on Ellen Datlow's Best of Horror Reading for 2022, which is very esteemed. That just came out a couple days ago. They're racking up the attention. They're racking up people reading their stuff. They're signing new people all the time. They're a merge series, which I think they open up every three months for that. They give people a chance that have never been published to have their story published and read by their readers. Mm. I honestly can't say enough good about them. And it's not just because I've published with them, because I've published with a number of other people too. Mm. But I truly think they're one of the best out there right now. And a lot of really strong authors are coming from their publishing, whether it's a novella, whether it's a novel, whether it's an anthology. Like I say, it's the preliminary. It's the very first list for suggested reading for the voters for the Stoker Awards. D&T has got five works on that list. That is impressive. Mm -hmm. People are reading their stuff. They're listening to it. They love it. Nothing but good things. My very favorite. (laughs) And Dawn's a trip. Dawn will tell you like it is, and she will love you so hard, and she will work herself to death for you. She's the Uh, best. It's awesome. Well, I see that you wrote the foreword to Season of the Witch, which is a horror story (laughs) anthology. What do you have to keep in mind when you write the foreword to a book? Because it's more than a review. It's sort of an introduction, I guess. It's an introduction, it's an honor, it's a responsibility, because you want to do the authors who do have stories in the book, you want to do them proud. And you also want to set the stage for the book. You want to set the tone for the book. You want to give the readers a little bit of an invitation to the stories that are included in the book. And I co-wrote it with my writing partner, Natasha Sinclair, who is in Scotland. And RJ Rolls was the first publisher to ever publish either of us three years ago. And when he asked us to do it, we're like, oh, God, do we really want to forward? Oh, my God, what if we mess it up? Nobody will read the book. (laughs) It's the first words that people read in the book. But it just released recently. Amazon was holding up the paperbacks. Every review that I've seen for it so far is five stars. It's got some terrific authors in it. It's the witch in all formats, all diversities, any which way the authors felt about writing it. The cover is super cool. And Crimson Pinnacle Press, it's RJ Rolls and Jason Myers, is another indie press to watch. They're doing some really neat things. But it's definitely different to write a forward because you can't write about yourself. Mm. You have to write about the people that you're representing in the front of the book. So it's very different. It's the second one I've done. And I hope I'm asked to do another one because it's just so cool because when people read the book, they're like, oh yeah, okay, now I'm even more excited to read the stories because this is what it's going to be about. And it sets the stage for everything. It's kind of like the warm-up act. Yeah. You know, you go see a really good rock band, but Mm -hmm. the people in front of it matter too, because if Mm -hmm. they're really not good, you're not psyched up to see the band. Yeah. So that's kind of what a forward is. It's a warm-up act. Even worse is if you go see a comedian and their opening act isn't good. Right. 
Exactly. Oh, oh my God. You know, then, then by the time the main person comes out, you're like, really? I hope yeah. he's better than the last guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's quite a responsibility. Mm-hmm. It is, but mm. it was a lot of fun and we pulled it off really well. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Natasha Sinclair. I keep hearing talk of a collaboration with Natasha entitled, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Delavan House? Delavan House. We are busting our butt. It's just about finished. We're in the very last stages of the finale. Mm -hmm. We've created something very multi-layered. And in the process of creating this, not only are we separated by miles, she's in Scotland and I'm in Texas. We both had COVID. And what was so strange is we both had it at the same time. So Mm. it puts off our game for longer than we intended. But the book is going to release February 1st. And Delavan House is folk horror. It has all of the elements that we hope people like in a gothic story that's rich with ritual, tradition, mythology, history, And there's, of course, going to be some darkness in there because that's our signature. We are intending for this one to cross genre, Vince. This won't be strictly horror. It's going to go into dark fantasy and dark romance as well. Nobody can write sex scenes like Natasha can. (laughs) I can't write them. I start laughing. I put my (laughs) hand down on a keyboard and I'm like, this is so stupid. I would never say this to somebody. I would never do this to somebody. She nails it every single time. She can write these ooey gooey, fabulous sex scenes and make them work. Now, I don't want to give too much away, but we've got some phenomenal characters based very strongly on some esoteric Scottish mythology. And we're going to hopefully really make a dent with this one. This one is planned to be a trilogy, and we're already talking about book two. We've got the cover for book two, and if this one does well, we're going to go right into book two next year. This one will have an international release, so I'm kind of excited about that. We're not limiting ourselves to just Amazon. We're going to be on every major platform, both in the United States and overseas. So it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, and especially now that we're down to the wire on it, we can't wait to get it done, but we're terrified. (laughs) It's one of those things, (laughs) mixed emotions. (laughs) Yeah. Well, how did you begin collaborating with Natasha? I mean, she's across the Atlantic. (laughs) She is. She is. Um, We met three years ago, and I think it was either a Zoom party or a Zoom meeting for a book release, and Mm -hmm. we just hit it off, and she's got the heaviest brogue you've ever heard, and Mm. you have to really listen when she's speaking, but our writing is not similar, but we write a lot of strong female characters, and we like the dark gothic side of things. Neither of us is afraid to add violence to our stories, Mm -hmm. and it was just one of those things where... You know, I'm tired of doing short stories. What do you think? Should we like do a novel? And we kind of talked about it a little bit. And we both decided that we wouldn't do it with anybody else. We just really understood each other's work ethic and what we were capable of. Um, And we complement each other in that what I'm not good at, which is graphics and tech and that kind of thing. She's a whiz at 
but I'm really good at meeting deadlines and getting words in. Mm. So between the two of us, it's been a really, really good collaboration. And we do weekly updates. We call them seductive Saturday updates. (laughs) And it's not that we're seducing you, but we're seducing you with words. I think we're on number 16 this Saturday. And it's on the www.brazenfolklore.com website we have. And every week there's an update into the making of Delavan House because we're creating an imaginary village. We're creating imaginary settings. And so brazenfolkhorror.com, and that's purely for the uh, evolution and promotion of the book, or is there other things involved as well? It's for, it's for our collaborative literary works, because we do plan on doing two more books in the series, or even talking about a YA, which would be a young adult spinoff, if it goes over as well as we think it will. It's been a ton of work, but I think we're making magic. Well, circling back to when we were talking about Amazon cancel culture and the taboo violence and things like that, when you're writing a particularly violent scene, much like one at the end, what are you feeling at that moment? And does it ever leave you with, for lack of a better term, an emotional hangover? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have written certain things and cried afterwards. (laughs) It does. And then other times I've been elated because a character that had it coming got it. There's a character, and it's in an anthology from D&T called The Dire Circle. And there's a character in my story in that one. It's titled Don't Judge a Book. And she's a librarian, but she has other skills. And in that one, when I wrote the ending and the villain got what he had coming to him, I kind of think I remember actually clapping and jumping up and down the chair after I wrote it. Mm -hmm. There's very much an emotional connection. You're very invested in these stories. You're very invested in the writing. Sometimes I feel elated, and sometimes I'm drained. Sometimes I just want to shot a bourbon and be left alone for two hours (laughs) afterwards. It's like I've got to have a palate cleanse after the fact, as it were. (laughs) My little glotto. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know you live on a huge ranch in West Texas. Have all your stories been written on the ranch? And the reason I'm asking is because I wanted to know, like, in what ways do different settings color the tone and subject matter of your stories? Um, All of my stories have been written here at my desk. I'm one of those people that likes quiet when she writes. I don't listen (laughs) to music normally. I don't have the TV on. I kind of just like to sit and soak it in. I do think that that adds to the bleakness of a setting Mm. to a certain extent. I've talked to a lot of different people about this. Some people like to play music that's connecting them to what they're writing about. And I do that when I'm editing or when I'm going through the final process more. But when I'm actually designing it, I like that sense of isolation because my stories are dark. I don't write lighthearted stories. So I think I want that darkness to kind of be around me in a figurative sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you look out my windows, you see nothing but fields. And Mm -hmm. depending on the weather, the light can either be very welcoming or it can be very forbidding. And I live in a hundred year old rock house. It does add to who and what I am in some respects. Well, so 
besides the obvious length of the stories, what are the differences in your writing process of short stories versus a novella or even a collaborative effort like with Natasha Sinclair? Short stories, typically, I will have a basic idea. I will have a few notes scratched out about who I want the characters to be, what the threat is in the story, and how the story might end, and also how I can interject a degree of horror or dread. So it's mostly post-it notes and a notebook and some handwriting. Longer pieces definitely require a loose draft. I have to kind of figure out where the story is going. And one thing I don't like as a reader is extra words. So I tend to edit my words down. I don't use a lot of extra words when I'm writing. I don't use filler. I don't pad backstories or character descriptions. When you're writing something longer, you either have to add more characters or more tension to make the story fleshed out enough to equal the word count or the page count or whatever you're intending with a longer work. So I actually do outline. Now, Natasha and I have had an interesting way of collaborating. We have a master doc on Google Docs, but the way we add to it is we'll both work in a Word document and then we go into the master document and it's almost like a puzzle. We're putting those sections in where they belong because I think we're like at like 55,000 words currently with about 10,000 more to go. And you kind of have to have it make sense because if you don't, even as an author, when you're reading along in a longer work, you want your story arcs and your character arcs to true up. In other words, you don't want to say, oh, yeah, well, this one had brown hair and this is where she lived. And then five chapters later saying, no, 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 she had blonde hair. So it's very important that you keep things in order to a certain extent. And she and I Zoom about once every week to 10 days to make sure that we're in the same wheelhouse with where things are going with everything. I will say this, it's a lot more challenging writing long novels when you're not writing them yourself. <laughs> but that also makes for it also makes for a real unique voice, as it were, when I'm reading it back. Because I've got her trains of thoughts and my trains of thoughts. And it's much more interesting than if I were just writing it myself. So there definitely is a different process for me. But you say you don't have a problem editing down and figuratively killing your darlings. Oh, heck no. <laughs> you slaughter those darlings. I will cut down <laughs> to the bone because I really dislike, and for a while it was a trend, where you'd get into these novels, and of course they're all best-selling novels and this and that. My gosh, Vince, they waste so much space saying nothing. <laughs> I just want to read the story. I want to get the feel for the story early on. It doesn't add anything. And I will blame some of that on television and some of the series we watch. Mm -hmm. Not so much the movies, but some of the series, like the made-for-Netflix series, mm -hmm. because they have to come up with a longer length to attract an audience and get a viewership. But i got to tell you, two or three of the series typically aren't worth watching. So I think as contemporary authors, we're also caught up in that and that we want to give the reader's enough bang for what they're buying. But I want to read the meat of the story. I really will cut things out if I don't think 
they're going to hook you and they're going to keep you interested enough. I will kill it all down. Yeah, I have no problem <laughs> editing. <laughs> <laughs> well, where is the strangest place you have ever gotten a story idea? Oh, gosh, the strangest place I've ever gotten a story idea. Probably... In this country, we're gonna we're gonna stick with this country for now because okay. I have traveled internationally quite a bit. The strangest place I've gotten an idea for a story would be where I live is very rural. It's still kind of like stepping back into 1950s, although civilization is rapidly encroaching for the good and for the not so good. And there is a crossroads nearby. And of course, we all have a fascination with the crossroads. It's from the, you know, the, the story of the guy with the guitar that went down and made the deal with the devil and <laughs> so many different things happen at the crossroads. Well, I was actually doing some volunteer work and I got lost coming home one day. I've lived here for 25 years, but if you take the back roads out here, sometimes you can still get lost because they dead end or they end up at a ranch gate or something like that. And I came upon this crossroads and I'm sitting there going, my truck is sitting in the middle of a crossroads. This cannot be good. I could not get the GPS to work. Mm -hmm. I didn't have cell coverage. There's a lot of dead spots out here. Mm -hmm. I can go three miles from my house and I won't have any cell coverage for 10 minutes. Oh. And I'm sitting there in the middle of this rural crossroads. There's actually a cemetery with an eyesight. I have no cell coverage. I don't know where I'm supposed to be going to get back home. And I thought, I got to write about this. <laughs> this is crazy. So many bad things could happen to me right now. <laughs> and I don't mean, I don't mean a person or just really bad yeah. things could happen to me sitting in the middle of this rural crossroads. I have gone on to use that a couple of times in a couple of short stories. But I'm not done with it yet. I have a thing for crossroads because of that. There aren't that many of them left. And typically they were a southern attribute, but they were always the center of a small southern gothic kind of town, as it were, type thing. But when my truck was sitting in the middle of the crossroads, I'll tell you what, there was a bunch of inspiration for about 20 minutes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. It doesn't even have to involve another person. Yeah. yeah. No, mm -hmm. it was just creepy. Like I am in the middle of a crossroads. Do I start making deals? Because I got a list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, paint a picture for me of Ruth Ann writing. You're at a desk. Are you on a laptop? Mm, Are you mm -hmm. on a desktop computer? You already said it's got to be quiet. Is everybody kicked out? They're not allowed to be within 20 feet of you? <laughs> well, actually, it's just my husband, Michael, and all of his animals. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> Most of them are outside. We do have an 11-year-old border collie. She's like having a toddler. Everybody <laughs> is doing their own thing during the day. You know, there's always a lot of work here to be done. I'm typically alone and I write on a MacBook Pro. And I have a beautiful desk in the corner of my bedroom, and I just kind of immerse. Some people say, you know, they like to drink a certain thing or they like to eat a certain thing. Nah, I just kind of have my water and I just kind of sometimes I'll get an extra cup of coffee or a diet soda if I'm dying. But mm. I just kind of like to get into it. I like to know, though, Vince, that I've got uninterrupted time. 
I'm not a person who can write in short spurts. A lot of people do sprints. Like they'll write for 20 minutes, they'll go do something, then they'll come back to it. I want at least a couple hours of uninterrupted time. I'll turn my phone off. I won't look at social media. And I just like to sit there and get lost in what I'm doing. It's kind of a, it's a therapy as it were, but it's also kind of a Zen-like thing Mm -hmm. because you get to sit there and you're creating something that's never been seen or heard of before. So it's a real big thing with me. I'm like, yeah, I could do this. You know, it's kind of like my reward as it were (laughs) after I've gotten everything else done I want to do for the day. And I will get pissy. I will get resentful (laughs) if somebody intrudes and I don't get to write. I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, really? Can't you leave me alone? I've got to get this done. So I will say that I do respect my solitude and I kind of expect my privacy when I'm doing that. Anybody listening, do not call on Ruth Ann without announcing yourself prior. No, no, not if you know <laughs> And I know some people say they write in their pajamas. They, you know, I have to have makeup on. I have to be dressed. I have to sit there as if I'm going to a job. Hmm. It's just an extension to me of quality. And I feel I do my best work when I'm pulled together Maybe my characters are judging me to a certain extent. Mm. So I certainly don't want to look like, you know, a trash panda sitting there. Right <laughs> <laughs> oh. Isn't that crazy? I love it. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was about to comment on how, how interesting that was that you are dolled up and presentable to write. And then you said trash panda that threw everything off. <laughs> <laughs> Now you're getting the, the full Irish Gemini coming at you. You know, I might look all ladylike and I might have my lipstick on, my nails are already done, but I will rip your heart out in those words if you give me a chance. If the story demands it, I will go there. Well, where did you learn the craft of writing? I've always written. I don't think it's a thing that someone learns. You can learn technique events. You can definitely improve. We all take workshops. We all take virtual classes or actual classes. I think it's something in some of us, we're storytellers and we have to have a way to get that out, whether it's artistically. Some people make films, some people paint. I don't think you learn to write. I think you write because you're a storyteller and you learn technique to do it more effectively. Kind of like being a chef. You learn how to use the equipment. You learn how to follow a recipe, but ultimately it's that. Ultimately, you're a high creative that has to get it out somehow. And I love taking workshops and I love taking virtual classes. Some of them are very demanding. I mean, I guess if you were getting a PhD or whatever, they'd be four credit classes And then when you go to like StokerCon, which will be in Pittsburgh in June next year, they offer all day long classes and panels. And then you can take additional classes with some of the best in the biz. And that's who I learn from. I learn from the people that I admire their technique that have either done it longer, done more of it, or their style is just so unique. I want to understand more about how they convey that to their readers. 
So I think if you write, what you are learning is how to write well enough to tell your story so your readers understand it and want more from you. Yeah. Well, what do you find to be the most personally beneficial aspect of writing for you? It's therapy. It keeps my crazy <laughs> off the streets. <laughs> it's uh, What crazy I, do you I, speak I do, of? <laughs> what crazy do I speak of? You've read my work, Vince. <laughs> Some of us don't see things quite the way other people do. Mm. I, think, um, I think when you're a storyteller, you find inspiration, as you've defined, in all things and all people and... What's beneficial is it gives you a platform for it. I can write these things that I observe or that I dream up or that I'm affected by in some way. And other people get it too. And that gives it validation. It makes it real. The first time I heard one of my stories on Audible, which is the Amazon listening platform, mm. you can listen to the books and stories. I burst into tears because my words and my characters, somebody breathed life into them. Mm -hmm. They gave them a physical voice. So for me, the most rewarding thing and the most valuable thing is knowing that somebody else is going to read these words today, tomorrow, 50 years from now, whatever, and they're going to get my story. And that's huge. And it's so funny because I was just talking to somebody the other day and, you know, when all your friends are authors or a lot of your friends are authors and, you know, you hang out with people in publishing and the business, you assume everybody does this. There's such a small percentage of people that actually do it. Mm -hmm. Everybody always says, oh, I'm going to write a book. Oh, I should write a book. Or, oh, you should write a book. There's such a small percentage of us that actually do it mm -hmm. because it's damn hard work. And to me, being in that minority of people that have learned or that care enough to do it and hopefully do it well to a certain extent, it's a thrill. It just, it becomes kind of who you are at a certain point. You can say you're an author and you're like, wow. That's really a cool thing. I mean, it's not an astronaut, but in some <laughs> ways it is. It's really a cool thing. It's yeah. a cool little thing to be. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, what is the life of Ruthann like outside of writing? Besides the crazy? <laughs> well, how do you <laughs> utilize the crazy for personal enjoyment <laughs> outside of writing? <laughs> it's pretty much 24-7, Vince. <laughs> I have a lot of other hobbies. I have a large blended family. I cook. I sew. I've always done interior stuff. You never know around here from one day to the next what the needs are going to be of the animals or the people or the place itself. I swear this ranch has its own heartbeat. Mm. It just functions whether or not we contribute to it or not. It's kind of surreal sometimes. I work out. I do all kinds of things, but none of the things I do are typical in that they're not convenient. I have to drive an hour to get gas or pick something up. San Antonio's the closest city. That's about two hours one way. So outside of my writing and the things that I do here, my time is pretty scheduled because I have to plan my days when I go do certain things. It's not like I can hop out. 
I mean, I can't even run to Walmart because that's an hour one way. Mm. So it's a different kind of a lifestyle. And you have to, like I say, plan ahead. And I'm always thinking of what I have to do, where I have to, you know, send something or do something. Do I have deadlines? And then when you've got kids and grandkids in our case, and I have five sisters and two brothers and my mom's in New York and you've got to give to those people. We all have obligations. And some days, like I say, I turn the phone off because the people in my story need me more on that day. Everything else can wait. My sister that's fighting with the other sister can wait. <laughs> I have to deal with people in my in my story at that point. So I have a very good and a very full life, but it's not a typical life in terms of unless you live very rural or very isolated, we're definitely not off the grid. We have every possible convenience here, but it's not typical. So there's built-in challenges with that. Okay. How many acres is the ranch? We live on about 350, mm -hmm. but there's more around us that is leased for ground crops and hay and that kind of thing. And the cattle have different pastures and mm. I don't go off the concrete <laughs> unless I take a four wheeler and need to go look at something because I just don't do that. There's a lot of predators and there's rattlesnakes and there's things and it's big. It's not as big as a lot of them out here, but it's very old and it's big. People are like, oh, yeah, well, where's your boundary and where does it? I don't know. I don't go to those places. There's no reason for me to be out there. Something will hurt me. Um, yeah, I, I really don't need to be out there. I know there are a few old graves down in the field. I pretty much know where the backfield ends. There's woods. There's a creek. I've often said if someone was going to film a short film, we've got everything right here. I'm like, come make your movie here because we do have woods. We do have a creek. We do have kind of all the elements for like a great zombie movie or something like that. Yeah. We've got creepy old oak trees and that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's big and it's old and it's dusty and it's dirty. <laughs> it's everything that you think a cattle ranch would be. <laughs> Is it anything like Yellowstone? Um. It's funny because a lot of people say my husband's like John Dutton. He is and he isn't. He's very territorial. He's very in charge. Uh -huh. He's very connected to his land and his stewardship. In other words, he understands his responsibility to the land. He realizes his privilege, but he also realizes that with that does come great responsibility. Uh -huh. It's a lot of hard work. It's constant rotating. It's constant taking care of animals. It's constant fixing fences. You have to work within guidelines all the time, tax exemptions, paying taxes. It's really kind of an endless process. Mm -hmm. We're not nearly as big as like the ranches in Montana where the Yellowstone is, but Texas is its younger sister. And unfortunately, private land ownership is being challenged currently. Mm -hmm. We have a large quarry that's set up not far from us. 
People would love to buy our property and stick suburbia out here. He's very territorial in that respect. I'm not from here, but having lived here for 26 years, I don't want some of those changes. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because hunting season just started here and we don't allow any of it near our house. We have cattle and the dog and I drive up and down the driveway and it's interesting how people don't respect fences or post-it signs. And there was an episode on Yellowstone early on about that. People just assume that it's all open land. That Oh, yeah, well, the state of Texas owns it. I can be here. No, the state <laughs> of Texas does not own it. and You cannot be here. And people get angry. And then they'll say to you, well, you should have known all this. You know, you should donate some of this. Oh, please. You donate it and people can't afford to take care of it. They just put up houses and they just, you know, pave paradise and put up parking lots. So, yeah, to answer your question, a lot of the similar challenges that you see with any old family land ownership today are being challenged. So in that respect, it's like Yellowstone. Yeah. Oh, wow. Man, I was kind of joking. I wasn't expecting it to be <laughs> to be that bad. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, you asked, Vince. <laughs> I know. Like, oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's fabulous. <laughs> it's wonder. It's no, it's wonderful. But it is becoming a challenge. You have to really be aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was doing some research, and I was listening to an interview you did on the Horrorcraft podcast, and you were talking about the French extremist movement. Uh -huh. And I just about screamed, hell yeah, when I heard you <laughs> mention the movie Martyrs. That oh, is yeah. mine and my fiance's favorite movie ever. And I'm not talking about favorite horror movie. I'm talking about favorite movie, period. And I do know why. Uh, Horcraft podcast, Cassandra Brodsky. She is one of the coolest women. She's a paralegal by day and a horror podcaster by night. And she's just smart and funny. And she's one of the smartest women I've met in this business. Martyrs. I fell into that, oh, a number of years ago. And I can honestly say, and I had this discussion recently with somebody on Twitter. I don't remember if it was Jamie Flanagan or somebody else who knows a lot more about films than I do, that I've watched it twice and I don't see myself ever watching it again because it's so difficult to watch. It evokes every emotion that you can possibly feel. Good, bad, indifferent, sympathy, hate, disgust. Mm -hmm. And then the ending of Martyrs, you do not see coming, even if you rewatch it a second time. Mm -hmm. There's so many unanswered questions that, for me, it's an extraordinarily disturbing movie. As much as I love it, mm -hmm. I could probably watch it every day and sit there with somebody like yourself and break it down frame by frame. And, you know, we could analyze it all day. But it's so disturbing and the implications and everything connected to it. There's nothing else like it. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> me and my fiance were just like we were just staring blankly at the television as the credits <laughs> rolled like what? 
the hell? Because <laughs> did you watch the original French we're speaking of? Right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm not even yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. the re the American remake in no, 2015. No, 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 no. I'm talking French, about 2008 yes. French Pascal Lagier. In fact, I actually spent some money on a uh, subscription service briefly so I could get Pascal Lagier's publicist information. <laughs> so Ooh. one of these days where I feel like he would be interested, and I would love to try and get him on, but. Uh, can you even imagine? Oh, my gosh. Uh, it would really be something. Yeah. I mean, you probably have to have an interpreter, but that'd be OK. You oh, no, no, I no. Mean? He speaks English. Is he fluent? OK. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a cool, slick French accent, but he speaks right. perfect English. Perfect yeah. English. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing else like it. I think when you and I were chatting back and forth earlier, Eden Lake is in that same vein for me. Funny Games is in that same vein for me. The original Suspiria would probably be in that same hmm. extremist kind of thing from that era. They really aren't duplicating that today, in my opinion. I've watched a couple of the good Korean movies lately that I've really enjoyed, and they're flat-out horror, and you do not see it coming. A lot of the stuff I'm watching on Netflix or Shudder, Vince, it's leaving me cold. They aren't going deep enough. They're not going into the meat of the story. They're going for shock factor. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, Martyrs has got the shock factor, but what it's got is a story that drives all of the extreme reactions that it's provoking. There's definitely a story there. And like I say, I've never had another movie affect me like the ending of that one did. Yeah, and it's weird because you kind of spend the majority of the movie trying to figure out what is happening. And then literally with in what is that speech last? It's like that man goes to the top of the steps and explains everything. It's like this right. 90 ton psychological weight is just dropped in your lap that you're just staring at like, holy shit, this is what's been going on. And you still don't walk away knowing what to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still walk away with a question. You understand why they're doing it, though. You don't understand what the ultimate reality is. Yeah, but when he sews it up perfectly like that, this is what I've been watching this entire time. And you realize what they've been doing. You're like, holy shit. Like, I, you know, you don't see it coming <laughs> from a mile away. No. And that's what I'm referring to because the things that I'm watching now, most of the more contemporary films, You've got it figured out before halfway through, and it doesn't have any impact in the end. I want to walk away from a movie like that or a book like that and still have questions because I want to think about it. I want it to have that kind of effect, even though a movie like that will keep you up at night thinking about it a little bit. But <laughs> I do want to have that effect because to me, that's the mark of a really original mm. piece of work. Yes. It's not something that's done before and that you anticipated halfway through. And anytime anybody asks me, it's always at the top of my list. And it's amazing how many people haven't seen it. Like there are a couple of other films, like a Serbian film and a couple of the other really extreme films. People will tiptoe around. They'll be like, oh, well, this is the worst one I ever watched. Or Martyrs isn't the worst one I've ever watched. It's the one that affected me the most profoundly. So for yeah. me, it puts it at the top of my list. Yeah. 
Well, another one that I heard you mentioned that you loved, which I love as well, and most everybody that I know that have seen it don't like it for some reason, is The Witch. Oh, it's perfect. Perfect. It's fabulous. Once again, the ending of that, you're left with questions. Mm -hmm. You're left with all kinds of questions, and you go back and you try to think in your head, oh, my God, what did I miss? Was she really doing this? Was she really in agreement with the devil when this was going on? Mm -hmm. Did she sacrifice her younger siblings? You're left with all these questions, and it's such a mm -hmm. beautiful film to watch. The bleakness of it, mm -hmm. the absolute gothic undertone, that heavy religious forbearance through the whole thing. We actually watched one last week called The Wonder. And if you haven't seen The Wonder yet, Florence Pugh is in it, and she's becoming one of the it actresses. And it's, again, got that heavy undertone of religious doctrine and obsession going through it, like the witch, hmm. that fuels the terror, and it fuels the horrifying things that are happening. You need to catch the wonder. It just started last week on Netflix. It was really, really, really good. It's completely different, but it's propelled by a heavy gothic sense of religious indoctrination, as it were, which, of course, drove the witch. And that's why everything happened that happened. But uh, most of the people that I know love it because, consequently, they loved Heredity and they loved Midsummer. So it's those three are like the holy trinity of current movies that people discuss when it comes to folk horror or when it comes to that kind of horror. I will say Heredity is my least favorite, though I think Toni Collette deserves all the awards all the time. Holy I think she's shit. a brilliant yeah, yeah, she's just unbelievable. But um, Midsummer, I got sick of the whining. I love the cult aspect, but I just wanted to slap a couple of the characters, whereas... The witch, I was intrigued and truly didn't know what was going on until the very end. And that one scene where the devil or whatever we call him these days puts his hands on her shoulder and she signs the book. I'm like, holy shit, this is just damn, you know, you're actually seeing somebody signing their soul away and the way it was done and her innocence and everything. I love that. As someone who writes in the genre, that was huge for me. We saw it actually happening where so many times it's just implied. Mm, what was it? Do you wish to live deliciously? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That's everything. Just now, uh, wish to, the taste of butter, wear a pretty dress. Do you mm. want to live deliciously? Who doesn't want to live deliciously? Of course I do. Is there I don't even know what that means, but God damn it, I want to live deliciously. <laughs> I want me two bits. I'm about ready. Yeah. This is going to be our new motto for 2023. Live deliciously. Live deliciously, exactly. God damn it. Exactly. <laughs> Mine for this year was go rogue. I was going rogue this year. I oh, wasn't going to listen to people. I was going to find my own voice. I was going to stop getting caught up in everybody's drama. So this year I went rogue. Next year I'm going to live delicious. It's going to be, I'm going to remind you of it. I'll be messaging you going, Vince, live deliciously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I may or may not answer because I might be going rogue. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you some advice there. I can give you advice there. Delicious, I'm working on rogue. I got that. <laughs> All right.
Well, Ruth Ann, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I love talking to you. It's terrific. Thank you so much for having me. As we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Oh, gosh. Well, the big thing that's coming is Delavan House releasing February 1. And then next year, we're looking at Pre's Crossing, which is the sequel to my novella, The New Girl's Patient. And I'm also looking at another novel in this series called Delavan Diaries next year, and potentially another one that I've got a lot of interest in. I just don't know if I'll have the time to finish writing it called Her Surgeon's Knot. So next year is going to be Live Delicious and Write the Damn Novels. (laughs) Um, I don't see myself doing a lot of short story work unless it's for charities. And I try never to say no to a charity, Antho. I do believe when you get to a certain point, it's really good and you have to give back. And it's my way of giving back to the community. I'll contribute work or whatever I can do to help. But that's it pretty much for looking forward. Then I'll keep my crazy off the streets for a while. All right, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Ruthann, thank you again for joining me and live deliciously. Live deliciously, Vince. It's been my pleasure. Hope we talk again soon. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always... Thank you for listening. See you next time. My way.